On September 26, 1991, Capitol Hill was on edge. There was a big congressional hearing that morning, and nobody was sure if the star witness was going to make it. It was around 9 a.m. when her wheelchair rolled into the hearing room. She was immediately swarmed by photographers. The woman everyone had come to see was Kimberly Brigalis. Millions of Americans had heard her story. Now it was obvious that she didn't have much time left. She was 23 years old and weighed just 70 pounds. Her hair was short and wispy, and she wore a blazer decorated with pale flowers. As the cameras closed in, her eyes stayed pointed at the floor. Begin our hearing. Someone kneeled down and clipped a microphone to Kimberly's lapel, a few inches from the crucifix that dangled from her neck. Then the chairman of this House subcommittee, California's Henry Waxman, made some very brief opening remarks. Normally at a hearing such as this, the members of the committee would do a lot of talking. I think today we ought to be here to listen to the witnesses. Ms. Bergalis. The room fell silent, except for the clicking camera shutters. Kimberly could barely speak, but she mustered the strength to make one last public statement. I'd like to say that AIDS is a terrible disease that you must take seriously. I did nothing wrong, yet I'm being made to suffer like this. My life has been taken away. Please enact legislation so that no other patient or health care provider will have to go through the hell that I have. Thank you. By the end of 1990, AIDS had killed more than 100,000 Americans. Most of those victims were gay and bisexual men. But in many ways, the face of the epidemic was Kimberly Brigalis. Kimberly had been on the cover of People magazine and featured on The Oprah Winfrey Show. A young, attractive, straight woman devastated by a cruel disease. But the press and the public didn't just find Kimberly fascinating because of who she was. They were also captivated and terrified by how she'd gotten AIDS. Her account of it was scandalous and strange, almost unbelievable. She said that she'd been infected by her dentist. That claim would grab America's attention and create a monumental controversy. The man who Kimberly Brigalis believed had infected her would be made into a villain without America ever knowing who he really was. And even now, more than 30 years later, Kimberly's own story remains incredibly thorny. It's about facts and fiction, life and death, and how we decide who's guilty and who's innocent. This dying girl decided to take on the nation. If she were a person of color, a gay man, I don't think the public would have been as accepting of her as a hero. There's really no us or them in this. There is an epidemic which needs to be stopped. This is the season finale of One Year 1990, The Angry Death of Kimberly Brigalis. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. When Kimberly Brigalis went off to the University of Florida in 1985, it felt like her life was finally starting. 200 miles away from her strict Catholic parents, she soaked her hair in lemon juice to make it lighter and decorated her dorm room with a Pat Benatar poster. She also made good grades in her business classes and dreamed of becoming an actuary. Here she is in a television interview, a little less than a year before she'd testify in Washington, D.C. You know, I was at a point in my life 
where I was sending out my resume. And I was thinking about, you know, marriage and eventually, you know, children. And I had all these different goals. In the spring of 1989, a few months before Kimberly was scheduled to graduate, she got a job waiting tables. On her first day at work, she fainted. She also got a sore throat, and antibiotics didn't make it any better. It was a gradual thing. Uh, I started having the white patches inside my mouth, and um, that's when I really got scared because I knew something was definitely wrong. By Christmas, Kimberly had gotten too weak to manage on her own. She moved back home to Florida's Atlantic coast. Her parents often had to carry her around the house. Doctors checked her out for everything. Diabetes, hepatitis, leukemia. Her mother, a public health nurse, thought it might be something else. She said to me and to my father that a lot of these symptoms are symptoms of AIDS. You know, she sees it up at the clinic. Her first HIV test wasn't conclusive. The second came back positive. I was in shock, uh, deep shock. I I couldn't believe that uh, this had happened. Kimberly was 21 years old, at a time when HIV was basically a death sentence. And she had no idea how she'd gotten infected. You just go insane with thoughts, trying to figure out how did this happen. The first thing you know, that struck me was really how young she was. Dr. Carol Soselski worked at the Centers for Disease Control in the AIDS Surveillance Branch. Which is like the CDC detective. So yeah, I did feel like a medical detective. State health departments asked for Carol's help when they couldn't figure out how someone got HIV. In March 1990, she went to Florida to pitch in on the Kimberly Brigalis case. That included interviewing Kimberly in person. She was very interested in talking to us to try to figure things out. HIV, the virus that causes AIDS, gets passed from person to person through blood and other bodily fluids, including semen. A few of the most common risk factors didn't apply to Kimberly. She wasn't an intravenous drug user, and she had never gotten a blood transfusion. As for sexual transmission, that was more of an open question. Kimberly said that she'd had some sexual contact, but never intercourse. Carol pressed her to describe exactly what she'd done. Kimberly said later that the questioning was pretty rough. When you were on a date with so-and-so, you tell us what really happened on that date. And, you know, where was his hand and where was your mouth? I just felt sorry for her because, you know, it was so uncomfortable. You know, I'm from the government. We're here to talk about your sex life. But, I mean, they were very necessary questions, obviously. Carol could tell that Kimberly was embarrassed. But she answered the questions and gave the names of two boyfriends. When the CDC tracked them down, both tested negative for HIV. That meant sexual transmission was looking unlikely. But Carol had one more avenue left to explore. And then we talked about you know, her medical history, and then we got to the point of her dental extractions. In December 1987, when Kimberly was 19 years old, she went to a dentist in Jensen Beach, Florida, to get her bottom molars pulled. We talked about the procedure, and she said that she remembered he wore gloves and a mask, and she was awake the whole time and, you know, was sort of uneventful. But then she said, but, you know, I've, I've heard there's some rumors that he might have AIDS. It's only a rumor, but I thought that's the only only person that I was exposed to that, that has AIDS. And, you know, that, that seemed like the only possibility. Even if those rumors were true, it seemed like the longest of long shots that he'd given Kimberly HIV. There had never been a case of transmission from an infected healthcare worker to a patient. Carol was skeptical, but she couldn't rule out the dentist theory until she'd done more investigating. That meant dropping in on the dentist. His name was David Acker. He was 40 years old, and he lived in a brick-and-stucco home with a fenced-in backyard and a fishing boat in the garage. It was at his house. You know, he didn't really know what we were coming there for. Carol noticed right away that he was sick. I just remember him, like, sitting back, sort of, I think it was on a lounge chair, and, like, he was very thin, you know, and his color wasn't very good. The rumors were true. David Acker did have AIDS. He told Carol that he'd gotten tested outside of town to avoid the stigma that came with being HIV positive. He said that he was bisexual and believed he'd been infected by a sex partner. He took out Kimberly Bergalis's molars three months after his initial diagnosis. 
Dr. Acker had no legal obligation to reveal his HIV status to his patients, but he said he always took precautions, including wearing gloves at a time when the CDC didn't officially recommend them for dentists. He shut down his practice in the summer of 1989, when he became too sick to work. When patients asked about Dr. Acker, they were told he had cancer. Now, in 1990, Carol explained why she'd come to see him. We're here because we're beginning an investigation of a case of AIDS in a former patient of yours who, you know, at this point, we don't know how she got it. And, you know, he seemed really, like, shocked and blown away. For confidentiality reasons, Carol couldn't tell him which former patient she was talking about. But she remembers Dr. Acker being very compassionate and concerned about that person's well-being. At the same time, he didn't think it was possible that he could have transmitted HIV to anyone who'd sat in his dental chair. I guess that's when I said, well, you know, there's one way to know for sure if we can have a sample of your blood and, and test it. Dr. Acker didn't hesitate. He told Carol to go ahead. We sat at his kitchen table and I drew his blood and then... We went back to the health department, packed it up, and sent it off to Atlanta. The CDC had collected Kimberly's blood, too, and sent off both samples for genetic testing. This was a totally new concept. No one had ever done DNA analysis to figure out if one person had transmitted HIV to another. Scientists in Georgia, New Mexico, and Scotland took up that challenge. And when their tests were done, they all reached the same conclusion. These two strains of HIV were a very close match. They were very similar. I think like 96% identical between the dentist and the patient. Carol and the rest of the CDC now believed it was likely that Kimberly Bergalis had been infected by David Acker. That meant they were looking at the first documented case of a healthcare worker transmitting HIV to a patient. And the implications were enormous. If there was even a slim chance to get HIV during an ordinary dental procedure, that message would scare a lot of people. The fear of AIDS was already off the charts. So before the scientists said anything publicly, they thought hard about how confident they really were. It was a, a big decision because if it turns out it wasn't true, we would be accused of fueling all the hysteria that resulted. After weeks of debate, the CDC made its final decision in July 1990. They were going to publish an article telling the world what they knew about the dentist and his patient, but with a note of caution. They said that the possibility of another source of infection cannot be entirely excluded. I remember I was sitting in the office when they push a little button that says send, and it's like, okay, here we go. Reporting from NBC News headquarters in New York is Jane Pauling. Good evening. On July 26th, Kimberly Brigalis was with her parents, watching the evening news. Through sex, drug use, transfusions of tainted blood, these are the ways we have understood the AIDS virus is transmitted. But today it was disclosed that, for the first time, a patient was infected with the AIDS virus by her dentist. NBC didn't lead with a note of caution. They were saying definitively that a patient was infected by her dentist. And while the CDC hadn't identified her by name, it took Kimberly just a few seconds to figure out that she was that patient. So it came out without her being told. It was horrible. It seems cold-hearted. The CDC had struggled over whether to give Kimberly a heads up, but ultimately they decided that they couldn't because they had an obligation to protect David Acker's confidentiality. Kimberly and her family felt outraged that they'd been kept in the dark. You know, when I'd ask about the dentist, I'd say, are you checking into this dentist of mine? And I thought they probably did look into the dentist, but thought, oh, it's impossible, and, and just dropped it. Little did I know. The NBC Nightly News was just the start. In the months that followed, there were stories about the dentist and his patient everywhere. There is mounting concern that a trip to the dentist could be hazardous to your health. There are 5,000 healthcare workers who are HIV carriers. In my opinion, they're all loaded guns. The American Medical Association and the American Dental Association pushed back at those alarmist claims. They said the CDC's report was sketchy and premature and causing unnecessary anxiety. My fear is that we're going to end up having patients that are going to be hysterical about going to the dentist. 
There were still so many unanswered questions. Did this really happen? How could it have happened? And who else might be in danger? After the CDC released its report, Florida health officials pleaded with David Acker to go public so the people he'd treated would know they might be at risk. On August 31, 1990, the same day he was transferred to hospice care, the dentist signed his name to a letter. It began, To my former patients, I am David J. Acker, and I have AIDS. The announcement was printed by the Stewart Daily News. I have AIDS, and for your peace of mind, I suggest you contact the local health department for free testing. David Acker did more than just urge his patients to get tested. He also defended his own character. The letter said, I am a gentle man, and I would have never intentionally exposed anyone to this disease. I have cared for people all my life, and to infect anyone with this disease would be contrary to everything I have stood for. Those words would be his obituary. Last night, there was an announcement by Dr. Acker's lawyer. Monday... Dr. Acker passed away. David Acker died of AIDS on September 3, 1990, just three days after he'd signed that letter. While the public now knew the dentist's name, the patient's identity was still a mystery. But it wouldn't be for long. Today, after months in seclusion, 22-year-old Kimberly Bergalis came forward and said she was the patient government scientists believe was infected with the AIDS virus. We'll be back in a minute. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Before anyone else could tell her story, Kimberly Brigalis wanted to tell it herself. This isn't something you can just sit back and, you know, and, and die from it and not let anyone know how this happened to you. The first patient believed to have gotten AIDS from a healthcare professional went before the public today, more than a month after investigators reported the case involving her dentist. On September 7, 1990, Kimberly stood up at a news conference and said that she was the one the CDC had been talking about. What we've gone through is an injustice. She said that she'd been totally healthy before the dentist David Acker took out her molars. Now she was gravely ill overcome with a nearly constant fever and crippling fatigue. But Kimberly told the media that she was on a mission. She wanted to make sure no one else would suffer like she had. I think if I can prevent this from happening to another family, then I think that's what needs to be done. In that room packed full of reporters, Kimberly sounded calm and composed. Her parents were far less measured. Today, Kimberly's mother described her family's ordeal. Hell. Hell, absolutely hell. If there's a hell on earth, we've, we're, we're here now. It could have been prevented. That's the bottom line. It could have been prevented. It didn't have to happen. George Brigalis said that his daughter's only shortcoming was her faith in the health care agencies. They failed, and she paid the price. Now the Brigalis family wanted to go after the people they thought were responsible. The dentist accused of transmitting AIDS to Kimberly Bergalis is Dr. David Acker. Bergalis is suing his estate and his insurance company for unspecified damages. Before she came forward in early September 1990, no one had any idea who Kimberly Bergalis was. Now, in an instant, it seemed like everyone in the country knew her name. I guess you've been seeing me in the newspapers and on TV. I have a disease called AIDS. She has forged ahead with press conferences, numerous interviews, and magazine articles, all to force change. Kimberly appeared on CBS This Morning and The Today Show. She was on the cover of People magazine. A photo that ran across two full pages inside showed her frail body curled beneath a blanket. A few months later on The Oprah Winfrey Show, she talked about the emotional toll of her diagnosis. I'm angry. I think I shouldn't be here. I should be out dating and with my friends, and, and I have a lot of anger. 
This shouldn't have happened. That story in People magazine said that all who know her agree that Kimberly is the last person they would have thought might get AIDS. Her father, George, put it more bluntly. He said that his daughter's sickness would have been easier to accept if she'd been a slut or a drug user. In interviews, Kimberly maintained that she was a virgin. She explained in a television documentary called Never Say Goodbye that despite her Catholic upbringing, her decisions around sex weren't a religious thing. It's just that I never really met the right, the right person. Uh, you know, I dated a lot of people, but it was never, it never clicked. Not everyone took her word for it. On CBS's 48 Hours, correspondent Aaron Moriarty gave voice to some of that skepticism. You can understand. I mean, it's, it's hard for some people to believe that somebody who's 22 years of age, a young girl in this day and age, right. is a virgin. Has never had any kind of sexual experience. Well, it's, it's not as if, you know, I wasn't dating, and, but I just never had sexual intercourse. All sorts of journalists were pushing her, asking for answers about what exactly she'd done with her boyfriends. I don't think anyone believed at the time that she was a virgin. That's Michael Cheek. In 1990, he was a young reporter at the Stewart News in Florida. He was assigned to Kimberly's story from the very first press conference. My job was to get her to share with me the details of her life in a way so that I could poke holes in it. Michael was just out of college, close to the same age as Kimberly. But in his newsroom, he'd already earned a reputation for getting people to talk. I requested to have an interview with her. It turned out that she needed to go to Miami where she was having treatment. And so I volunteered to drive her. What do you remember about that drive? We had a formal interview at the beginning and we had a formal interview at the end. But most of the drive was more about just talking and getting to know each other. We talked about her life in college. We talked about what happened when she got sick. And... I mean, I told her very early on I was gay. And she acknowledged, you know, like her father was very homophobic. And she would actually say, I'm not like my dad. That day, Michael also asked Kimberly about her sex life. And by the time the car ride was over, his skepticism had melted away. And I found her absolutely genuine. I believe her. I don't think she got it from any other person other than the dentist. That was Michael's journalistic hunch. But the American Medical Association and the American Dental Association were still skeptical of the dentist theory. Regardless of Kimberly's sexual history, they thought the scientific evidence was paltry and unproven. But it wouldn't be long before the dentist theory started looking stronger. Because Kimberly Brigalis wasn't the only one of David Acker's patients to get infected with HIV. In 1988, Lisa Shoemaker was in her early 30s and living in Jensen Beach, Florida. I was unfortunately a part of a carnival. <laughs> That's how I ended up in Florida. We owned a cotton candy wagon and a fried vegetable wagon. Lisa found that carnival pretty miserable, and she didn't like Florida much either. She hated the weather and the bugs. And then, in the summer of 88, it somehow got even worse. I had two abscessed teeth one on each side, so I couldn't do anything. Lisa found someone close by who called himself the painless dentist. His name was David Acker. It looked like a, a good dental office, and it looked clean. People were friendly. She got to know that office very well, going about 12 times. Lisa says that she never had much of a rapport with Dr. Acker, but he did do her a favor once. I love to be a vampire <laughs> for Halloween. <laughs> And I asked him if he could make me some teeth, you know, like vampire fangs. And he did do that. I thought that was nice. In the fall of 1988, a few months after she started going to Dr. Acker's office, Lisa found her boyfriend's journal and discovered he was cheating on her with men and women. So she decided to get tested. They told me over the phone, you are HIV positive. Lisa was devastated and confused. Because her boyfriend, strangely, was HIV negative. All she could think to do was move back to Michigan, where her parents lived, and try to get the care she needed. Two years later, in 1990, 
Lisa's father told her about a news story he'd just read. It was about a dentist who died of AIDS and who'd possibly infected one of his patients. And he said, what was that dentist's name that you saw in Florida? And I told him what it was. The man in the newspaper was David Acker. And I said, I think that's, that's it. At this point, Lisa and her dad decided to contact the CDC. I wanted to know. I wanted to know exactly how it happened. The CDC saw Lisa's situation as very different from Kimberly Brigalis's. While Kimberly didn't have any obvious risk factors, Lisa did, her ex-boyfriend. And when the CDC asked him to get retested, this time he was HIV positive. That seemed like the answer Lisa had been looking for. But when the CDC sent off a sample of her blood for genetic testing, they got back a surprising result. It showed that it was from the dentist himself. It was confirmation. Ultimately, the CDC would find six former patients who tested positive for HIV and whose strain of the virus closely matched David Acker's. That was hard to view as a coincidence. It was looking more and more certain that the dentist had infected a whole group of people who'd passed through his office, including Kimberly Brigalis. But the CDC and its leaders still couldn't explain how. If we look at the epidemiology and the sequencing together, they indicate a very high likelihood that this happened. There's no doubt that this particular case is an extremely unusual one. One theory was that a specific piece of equipment, a drill that Dr. Acker used on all the patients, wasn't properly sterilized. It was also possible that he accidentally jabbed himself through his gloves on a needle or a patient's teeth. Maybe that could have even happened six different times because he was tired or stressed or suffering from a tremor or numbness in his fingers. And then there was a more sinister possibility. Now, some people feel that Acker intentionally infected his patients, either by injecting his own blood into their mouths with anesthetic or by using instruments on himself and not cleaning them properly. There wasn't any good evidence to support the idea that David Acker had done this on purpose. But that theory did get floated a lot. On ABC's 2020, Barbara Walters made it sound like Dr. Acker was a sinister gay villain. An avid sportsman, he had what appeared to be a quiet and rather nondescript lifestyle. But what few people knew is that he drove to the gay bars in West Palm Beach in Fort Lauderdale, where he could enjoy a completely different life he kept secret. He was gay. He knew he was positive. He was a villain. And Kimberly Brigalis, she was an innocent victim. And that was the story. So that, of course, made me very angry. That's David Barr. He was the assistant director of policy at Gay Men's Health Crisis when the Kimberly Brigala story was dominating the news. It made me angry that there would be so much media attention on how did this person get HIV and much less attention paid to how are we responding to this very large public health crisis. That's a bigger story to me than one infection in Florida. David had found out he was HIV positive in 1989. And he saw firsthand the toll that HIV and AIDS were taking on gay men. The death was constant. There was no time to really stop and take it all in. You had to just kind of, it was warlike. But I think what made me most angry was just there was virtually no response from the government. So it was really left to the community to sort of handle everything. Instead of being seen as victims in need of support, Men like the dentist David Acker were shunned as vectors of the disease. The press always portrayed sort of that gay men, that we'd brought this on ourselves through our behavior. In the letter Dr. Acker wrote to his patients before he died, he'd called himself a gentle man. But those words of self-defense were the only defense he'd get. No one wanted to be associated with David Acker. Michael Cheek, the reporter for the Stewart News in Florida, had a tough time finding anyone who'd speak up for the dentist. He was vilified in that community after Kimberly came forward and the news coverage continued about her. Michael was one of the few out gay men in Stewart, a small conservative city. But after spending time with Kimberly Brigalis, he saw the story through her eyes, not David Acker's. And I'm sure it creeped into my writing. He was just this 
villain that had done something to this beautiful human being I'd met. And I even stopped calling him Dr. Acker or David Acker. I just called him Acker. The more stories Michael wrote, the simpler it all seemed to him. But then something happened that shifted his perspective. It all started at a shopping mall. And I'd gone to the bookstore and I was going to go to the food court to grab a bite to eat. And I bumped into someone who I knew from a story I'd written before and gotten to know a little bit. And he looks at me and he says, I don't like what you're writing about David right now. I kind of had this confused look on my face, I'm sure. And I said, David, who's David? And he said, David Acker. This was someone who'd known David Acker, who called him by his first name. And it wasn't just that. They were both part of a community of closeted gay men in Stewart, a group that Michael hadn't known existed. And that's when he told me about the Thursday nights at a local furniture store. There were no gay bars anywhere near Stewart. So that furniture store was the one place in town where David Acker and his friends felt safe being themselves. You went in the back door after closing hours, and this group of older gay men would socialize with each other, drink, hang out, talk, and I got an invitation. When Michael showed up at the furniture store, he found a group of six or seven people, and they all wanted to tell him about David. Just how kind he was. All of them went to him at his dental practice. He sometimes wouldn't even charge them for his services because some of them couldn't afford it, but he would take care of them because he cared for them. One of them told me a story about his home flooding and David showed up at his door with a shop vac to help him clean up. Now Michael was seeing the story differently through the dentist's eyes. He wanted to write about this David Acker, the pillar of his community, a man who was loved and mourned. But none of David's friends were willing to be quoted and risk outing themselves. I asked every one of them. I went back to them multiple times when it was always no. They were too fearful. Do you think it would have made a difference in terms of attitudes towards David Acker if that story had been allowed to be published? Honestly, no. The world wanted to vilify gay men with AIDS. Let's take a quick break. It's an antiviral medication. It takes me a while to drink it. I don't like the taste of it. Ugh. Yum. By January 1991, Kimberly Brigalis had been dealing with AIDS symptoms for more than a year. Despite the medication she was taking, her health was clearly declining. But she mustered the strength to keep on telling her story. If you have something, an infectious disease, that you can transmit to another person, that person needs to be aware of it because it's, it's their life you're playing with. The Brigalis family had made that exact case in a civil lawsuit, claiming the dentist David Acker had a responsibility to tell his patients he had AIDS. That turned out to be a winning argument. They got a $1 million settlement from one insurance company and an undisclosed amount from another. But Kimberly didn't have much use for money. She was dying, and she wanted to leave a legacy. The way I feel is informed consent is very important. I was never given that chance to, to get up and walk out, and, and look what happened. Kimberly believed that she was proof that it should be mandatory for healthcare workers to get tested for HIV. And she wasn't alone in that opinion. I did agree that if it was a healthcare where they're doing invasive procedures of any kind, yes, you should have gotten tested. Lisa Shoemaker again. She was one of the other patients whose strain of HIV was a close match for Dr. Acker's. If you are infected or infectious to somebody, you want to watch it and make sure you're not hurting someone else. In 1991, it felt like momentum was building. Then mandatory testing might become a reality. Sources say CDC officials may recommend that certain doctors be routinely tested for AIDS and that those infected be restricted from surgery or other invasive procedures. 
a lot of Americans thought that sounded reasonable. But AIDS activists were horrified. There were all sorts of mandatory testing proposals floating around. But pushing to test healthcare workers was, I think, particularly ominous. That's David Barr again. As an HIV-positive gay man and the assistant director of policy at Gay Men's Health Crisis, he believed that mandatory testing would actually make the epidemic worse. Because even without compulsory tests, it was extremely tough to find anyone to work with patients who had HIV and AIDS. There were a lot of healthcare workers who refused to touch people with HIV. A lot of the healthcare workers who would work with people with AIDS were gay, so they were more likely to have HIV. So we were concerned that mandatory testing would only, you know, make it harder to get healthcare workers working on AIDS in the first place. This wasn't just a theoretical concern. There were more than a dozen known cases where an HIV-positive healthcare worker lost their job after their status got revealed. That discrimination was motivated by fear, not science. Because when doctors and dentists practiced universal precautions, like wearing gloves and properly sterilizing their equipment, there was almost no risk of HIV transmission. And there were many, many people who had been treated by HIV-positive healthcare workers, and you weren't seeing infections. So it, this was unnecessary. Yeah, but there is a risk. The risk is there. That's where Kimberly Brigalis came in. Her case showed that transmission was possible, and it could happen to anyone. You know, yeah, that risk is small, but I, I'm the one that came down with it. It happens, and, and it took my life away. In that interview, which got broadcast in early 1991, Kimberly sounded like herself. But by the summer, she'd become incredibly frail. And when a reporter asked her a question, her response was barely audible. Do you see yourself as sort of the representative of AIDS victims nationwide? Yes, I do. Doesn't matter how they got it. It's, it's a disease, it's AIDS, and it's horrible. Kimberly's strongest statement came in a letter released by her attorney. It was directed at the bureaucrats she believed had cast doubt on her story, and the policymakers who hadn't taken action to prevent other cases like hers. And it was incredibly angry. She wrote, I blame Dr. Acker and every single one of you bastards. Anyone who knew Dr. Acker was infected and had full-blown AIDS, and stood by not doing a damn thing about it. Her family members read more from the letter in the documentary Never Say Goodbye. Unless a cure is found, I'll be another one of your statistics soon. You know what it's like to look at yourself in a full-length mirror before you shower and you only see a skeleton? If laws are not formed to provide protection, then my suffering and death was in vain. I'm dying, guys. Goodbye. And that was the letter from Kimberly Regalis. In July 1991, Kimberly's words made it to the floor of the United States Senate, thanks to Jesse Helms. Quote, I never used IV drugs. Never slept with anyone. I blame Dr. Acer and every single one of you bastards. End of quote. In another episode this season, you heard about how Helms used Robert Maplethorpe's photographs to spread the lie that gay men were sexual predators. Now the Republican senator found something to exploit in the Kimberly Brigalis case. Contrary to all evidence, he claimed that gay doctors were infecting patients everywhere with HIV. We have sat on our hands and bowed to the homosexual lo lobby time and time again when this senator and others have stood on this floor pleading that something be done about these people who are responsible for the spread of AIDS. It wasn't just Jesse Helms. Kimberly's letter and the cause of mandatory testing also caught the attention of a California congressman named William Dannemeyer. It is not unreasonable to suggest in the case of this epidemic in America that the civil rights of the uninfected should take precedence over the civil rights of the infected. Dannemeyer had written an entire book about what he saw as the threat of homosexuality. And in 1991, he'd become the Brigalis' biggest political ally. The Republicans sponsored a bill to mandate HIV testing and disclosure for healthcare workers. He called it the Kimberly Brigalis Act and asked Kimberly herself to testify before Congress. Despite her failing health, her family accepted the invitation. Hey, everyone. 
everyone. Please clear okay. a straight path for us. Okay, Excuse me, camera people. Kimberly traveled from Florida by train, and reporters tagged along to document the trip. Kimberly! Let's get her on safe. Kimberly! Kimberly! At the Amtrak station, her legs were too feeble to bear her own weight. So her parents held her up between them. So weak, she spent an entire 16-hour train ride from Florida to Washington, lying in her sleeper car, the only way she could make the trip. But she refuses to quit. AIDS is a horrible disease. We need to have mandatory laws. Mandatory laws? Yes. You want to see doctors tested? Yes. In Washington, on the morning of September 26th, Kimberly was wheeled into a hearing room. And it was a zoo. It was a media frenzy. David Barr was also in the room that day. He was there to testify against the Kimberly Brigalis Act. And in front of her table, it was a mob scene of journalists, 30, 40 people all like crammed, lying on the floor and, you know, snapping continually. Kimberly spoke for just 21 seconds. I like to say that AIDS is a terrible disease that you must take seriously. I did nothing wrong, yet I'm being made to suffer like this. My life has been taken away. Please enact legislation so that no other patient or health care provider will have to go through the hell that I have. Thank you. Thank you very much. George Bregalis spoke next, for significantly longer than his daughter. Chairman Waxman, members of this subcommittee, my wife said this morning on national TV that Kimberly is America's shame. Kimberly is your shame also. He told Congress that the civil rights of healthcare workers weren't his concern. People were put here to represent the majority of the people, not the minority of the people. He also dismissed the claim that mandatory testing would cost at least a billion dollars, while saving, at best, a handful of lives. Does that type of logic mean if Adolf Hitler had been responsible for only a handful of Jewish deaths, it would have been acceptable? One day, we will all be held accountable by our ultimate judge. We will face that day with a clear conscience, will you? When her father finished reading his statement, Kimberly was wheeled out of the room. And with that, most of the press cleared out. But the hearing wasn't over. I was sitting with two or three other people, and we were going to testify at the table to the left, and there was nobody in front of us at all. When it was David's turn to speak, he said that no other case of AIDS has received more attention than that of Kimberly Brigalis. He told the politicians that he and Kimberly actually had a lot in common. They were both young and spoke their minds and had family and friends that cared for them. And then David talked about something else they shared. It's the one thing that has struck me most about Ms. Bergalis, the one thing that feels most familiar to me, her anger. I appreciate and share your anger, Kimberly. I, too, am very angry. Like you, I feel that I do not deserve this fate. Although we may have acquired this virus in different ways, I have never asked for this, and neither did over the 115,000 Americans who have already died. I am angry that our government will criminalize healthcare workers instead of allowing them to do their jobs. They will test patients instead of providing care. They will collect names instead of providing treatments that could save our lives, yours and mine, Kimberly. Here we are together at this circus, being pitted against each other, Do not allow your case to be used as a means to draw attention away from the real threat that we, as individuals and as a nation, face from AIDS. What next for the Bergalis family now with this behind you? Well, we will continue to speak out. We will continue to talk to the press. It's going to happen again. There's going to be more Kim Bergalis happening again. Kimberly Bergalis and her parents flew home on a private jet donated by an air ambulance company. Once again, a reporter came along for the ride. Wearing a wool sweater and covered by a blanket, the 23-year-old AIDS victim settled in, exhausted from all the excitement, no doubt replaying her incredible experience in her mind. The footage from that plane ride is hard to watch. Kimberly is lying down and looks totally drained. 
And then her parents say she's up for answering one or two questions. You think you did your best? Yes, I did. You think you touched them by being there? You got your message across? Yes, but I don't know if it had any effects on them. Ask her. Ask her. enough. Back home in Florida, Kimberly was bedridden. She and her family sensed the end was coming soon. I'm ready. But I just don't seem to be able to go. Kimberly could barely speak at this time. She was skeletal, wasted away like too many people did from AIDS. Journalist Michael Cheek went to see Kimberly in December 1991. It was very difficult to not cry in front of her. The one thing I did not write about was the fear that you could see Because I think she knew we were there to say goodbye. Kimberly Bergalis, the Florida woman who got AIDS from her dentist, has died. She was 23 years old. AIDS had now claimed the lives of both David Acker and Kimberly Bergalis. In her final days, Kimberly had gone to Washington to try to spur Congress into action. But the Kimberly Brigalis Act, which faced enormous opposition from medical groups and AIDS activists, never made it out of committee. The mandatory testing bill was dead in the water. It didn't go anywhere. So ultimately, we won that battle. In 1991, the CDC issued new guidelines suggesting but not requiring that HIV-positive healthcare workers notify their patients. Today, that recommendation is no longer in effect. In the process of reporting out this story, we reached out to the families of David Acker and Kimberly Bregalis, but didn't hear back. We'll likely never know with absolute certainty whether Dr. Acker transmitted HIV to Kimberly and five other patients. But more than 30 years later, there's no alternative theory that holds up to scrutiny. And then there's this. Since Dr. Acker, there hasn't been a single documented case in the entire country of HIV transmission from a healthcare worker to a patient. If he did infect those six people, the CDC and Dr. Carol Soselski could never figure out how. Whatever happened in that dental office, you know, nobody will know, but whatever it was, was clearly very strange. Does it nag at you at all that you, like, weren't able to solve it on your end? Well, a little bit, but I don't think people appreciate how difficult it was. You know, there's almost... No way it really could have been solved. Four of the six patients whose strain of HIV matched David Acker's died of AIDS within just a few years. Lisa Shoemaker is one of two who's still alive. I don't really believe he meant to harm anybody, because usually when you get into the health arena, you're there to help people, not to harm them. Lisa started volunteering in Michigan schools in the mid-1990s, teaching teenagers about HIV and AIDS. She also served on the board of the Presidential Advisory Council on HIV-AIDS for four years. And a lot of the men that I got to be friends with would just pass away, and I wouldn't even find out until I go to the, the meetings. It was hard, because you're, you're still here. I wasn't supposed to make it. I'm a very lucky guy. David Barr is still here, too, three decades after he got his diagnosis and testified against the Kimberly Brigalis Act. Antiretroviral therapy, pioneered in the mid-90s, has extended lifespans far beyond what seemed possible at the height of the epidemic. But David refuses to get complacent. All of those things that we were grappling with then, we're still grappling with. There are still more than 35,000 new HIV infections in the United States every year. Mostly among Black and Latino gay men who have no HIV services outside of, you know, major cities on the coasts. There's no reason other than willful neglect. Everything I said to Kimberly about the things I'm angry about is as true today as it was then. Very soon, 
Slate Plus subscribers will get a special behind-the-scenes conversation with our team about how we put together our 1990 stories. In addition, as a member, you'll also hear every Slate podcast without ads and never hit the paywall on Slate's site. If you'd like to sign up for Slate Plus, go to slate.com slash one year plus. Again, that's slate.com slash one year plus. That was the finale of One Year 1990. Thanks for coming along with us. And if you want even more One Year, we've got seasons on 1977, 1995, 1986, 1942, and 1955 in our back catalog. I do have an announcement to make, which is that Slate has suspended production of One Year for now. That means there are no current plans to make more episodes. Our whole team is incredibly proud of the work we've done on the show. And it's been a joy to hear about what it's meant to you. Hey, this is Evan Chung, one year's senior producer. If you have a favorite episode or moment, or there's anything else that you want to tell us about our series, please leave us a voicemail at 203-343-0777. And if you do call in, we've got some special one-year merch that we'll send you while supplies last. That's 203-343-0777. This episode was written by Kelly Jones and me, Josh Levine, One Year's editorial director. Our senior producer is Evan Chung. It was produced by Kelly Jones and Evan Chung, with additional production by Olivia Briley. This episode was edited by Joel Meyer and Derek John, Slate's executive producer of Narrative Podcasts. Our senior technical director is Merit Jacob, and we had mixing help from Kevin Bendis. Holly Allen created the artwork for this season, we had production help this season from Jabari Butler. Mark C. Rahm's book, Fatal Extraction, was a valuable resource for this episode. The title of this episode comes from Timothy F. Murphy's essay in the book Ethics in an Epidemic, AIDS, Morality, and Culture. Some of the audio you heard comes from the Wolfson Archives at Miami-Dade College and the Walter J. Brown Media Archives and Peabody Awards Collection at the University of Georgia. Thank you to David Sifford III, Harold Jaffe, Chin Yeo, Don Marianos, Gail Naimo, Lawrence Gostin, Ruth Finkelstein, Nikki Economou, Lee Blessing, and Stephen Rains, whose book of poems, A Quilt for David, was also valuable to us as we made this episode. Special thanks to all of the producers who've worked on the show. Madeline Ducharme, who was there at the beginning, plus Sophie Summergrad, Shana Roth, Sam Kim, and Sol Worthen. And thank you to Christina Cotarucci and Joel Anderson for contributing amazing episodes. And thank you to everyone who made One Year 1990 possible. Susan Matthews, Forrest Wickman, Katie Shepard, Hilary Fry, Katie Rayford, Ben Richmond, Caitlin Schneider, Cleo Levin, Seth Brown, Rachel Strom, Jessica Seidman, Karen Fjellman, Andrew Robinson, Riley McCaskill, Emily John, and Alicia Montgomery, Slate's VP of Audio. And thanks to all of you for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.